So a while back, there was a group that had the name Baptist in their name, but uh, definitely wasn't someone that we would want to associate with, and they were called the Westboro Baptist Church. Does anybody remember that group that was making splashes in the news and really an embarrassment to most of us Baptists out there? And there was another individual, so that's one group, the Westboro Baptists with their signs and controversies. And then there was another group, uh, well, group, but particularly an individual. His name was Rob Bell. Does that name ring any bells to you, Rob Bell? He wrote a very popular book called Love Wins. And in that book, the attempt of that book was to try to put an evangelical spin on universalism. Universalism is the doctrine that everybody in the end will be saved. And so what he tried to do was say, look, I am, can you hand me the other mic? I am an evangelical believer, but this is somehow compatible with universalism. So we have Westboro Baptists on the one end spewing hatred and wrath and vileness. And then we have Rob Bell on the other end claiming that we can get rid of the doctrine of hell altogether and instead embrace universalism. Now hopefully we all recognize that both Westboro Baptists on one end and Rob Bell on the other were certainly not evangelical in the true sense. They do not represent the Christian faith and they had made major errors and problems. But I'm going to argue tonight that both Rob Bell and Westboro Baptists really made the same fundamental mistake. And we'll explore that a little bit later in the sermon, but I want you to think about it. What was the mistake that Rob Bell and Westboro Baptist made. If you could turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, and we will begin in verse 14. So Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. If you're not familiar, that's toward the end of your Bible, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who, we, who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed from men and things pertaining to God, that he might offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself, to become high priest. But it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. 
of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full of age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. All right, that was quite lengthy. We'll try to break it down piece by piece. So back to chapter 4, verse 14. So we see that our passage begins with pointing to Jesus, who is our high priest, who has passed through the heavens. The author is going to make much of the priestly role of Jesus and the fact that he is our high priest and what exactly that means for us as Christians. But before we address which most of this chapter is about, chapter 5, is all about Jesus' high priestly role. But before we address that, we should ask ourselves for just a moment, what is the relationship between verse 14 and everything that precedes it? Okay, so you see verse 14, and if you just scan up, and you've been here for the last few sermons, you can remember the context is that right before that, we have that verse that I tried to take from you, and eventually I gave it back to you, that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than two any two-edged sword, that he is the discerner of the hearts and intents of men. And before that, you see the author of Hebrews comparing uh, his audience with the Hebrew audience, of, I mean the um, Israelites in the wilderness, and saying, do not be like them. Because even though they were externally the people of God, they did not enter into, ultimately, God's rest. And so, too, if we are merely externally the people of God, we won't enter into God's rest. Then he warns you, Jesus is the word of God. He can see through all of your shams. He can see through all of your lies, all of your deceptions, all of your Christianese, all of your foolery. He can see through all of it and see your heart. And if you think that you can fool him, you're wrong because Jesus knows whether you truly accepted him and whether you're truly born again. So that's the context of right before verse 14. So the question is, how does verse 14, seeing then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession... How does that follow on this idea that we cannot fool Jesus for he can see right through us? And I think the answer to that is what's going on here is that the author of Hebrews has just really scared us with pointing to Jesus as the all-seeing eye, as the great judge, the one whom we are naked and exposed before him. So after he spoke of these things in this way, he immediately speaks of Jesus as our merciful high priest. And I think what's important for us to see is that there's this biblical tension. And the biblical tension is this, that God is a whole lot more wrathful than you ever thought he was. Okay? And this is where some of us feel a little squeamish. But we have to understand that God is an extremely wrathful God. And for those who ultimately disobey him, refuse to repent, and refuse to come to him, there's nothing but wrath and fury that was going to come down upon them. And that's really what you see with this idea that we're naked and exposed before him, that you will not enter his rest. If he kicks you out, you're not getting in. So we see the idea that Jesus is, in fact, extremely wrathful and angry toward sin. 
But we also see right after it, just in case a tender-hearted Christian is going to say, well, because Jesus is so wrathful, because Jesus is so scary, then I'm going to stay away from him. You have this other picture of Jesus, namely as his sympathetic high priest that you can come to and that he can understand what you've gone through and you can come to him. And so you see that there's that tension, there's that balance. There's both on the one side, God is much more wrathful than you ever can imagine. I mean, just think about eternal conscious torment. Think about how horrible that must be to remain alive and yet be separated from God in a place of never-ending torment, pain, described as darkness, a pit, loneliness, sadness, fire, and worms. I mean, it doesn't really get more horrifying than that, right? Isn't that true? Like, if you think about your worst nightmare, that probably is it right there. And it doesn't get much worse. So God is extremely wrathful, and yet at the same time, God is extremely merciful. And we as Christians must hold that balance. We must say God is, in fact, extremely wrathful, and at the same time say that does not mean that we cannot come to him. He's very wrathful toward his enemies and those who have not made peace with him, and yet he's very loving and merciful and kind and sympathetic for those who have made peace with God. I'll give you an example of this, this biblical balance of the fact that God is extremely wrathful and yet God is extremely loving. We can think of many verses. First John 4.16 says, God is love. Remember that verse? God is love. And that should give us wonderful comfort to think we serve a God who is fundamentally love. There's that inner Trinitarian love that he has between the three persons, and he shares that with humanity, extending, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So the God of love pours out love. And yet, in Nahum 1 verse 2, it says, God is jealous and avenging. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Now, how many of you have heard that verse? If I said God is, what would you say? You'd probably say God is love. You probably wouldn't say God is jealous. God is wrathful. God is furious. But the truth is, God is both. And the Bible reveals both. And what we don't get to do is to say, you know what, I like the God is love verse. See, that's what Rob Bell did. He said, I like the God is love verse. And that supersedes all the other verses in the Bible. So all the verses in the Bible that say that God is jealous, that God is wrathful, that God is furious. No, just God is love. And that's the mistake that he made. Westboro Baptist didn't seem to understand that verse, God is love. And they would take the verses that God is angry with the wicked all day long, and that was the only verse they knew. And then they would cover the rest of the Bible. See, they made the same fundamental mistake. They decided which picture of God they wanted, and that became the only image of God. And then God was created in man's image and distorted. But we cannot do that. We have to accept what the Bible teaches, namely that God is, in fact, a wrathful God toward his enemies, and yet God is a very loving and merciful high priest to those who are his. Just two verses to prove this. Matthew ten twenty eight says, Do not fear man who can destroy the body, but not destroy the soul, but rather fear God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's one picture of God, straight from the lips of Jesus, New Testament. And yet also in 1 John 3, 1, it says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. So one picture of extreme wrath, another picture of extreme love and kindness. There's actually a Bible verse that really summarizes everything I've been trying to say in these few minutes. And it's Romans chapter 11, verse 22. Here's what that verse says. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. 
severity on those who fell, but towards you, goodness, if you continue, otherwise you also will be cut off. You see that? Consider the goodness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who fell. Those who fell are cut off. Those who have remained, and in this context, those who have been grafted in, Gentiles, God's goodness. And of course, there's that caveat. Goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you too will be cut off. So the point of all that is to say that this passage is very similar to that passage in Romans 11. Right after we get God's scary wrath, we get the wonderful high priestly image of Christ. And we need to have both. You think about medieval Roman Catholicism and their doctrine of purgatory. Do you know why Roman Catholics don't come to Jesus? Primarily, they go to who? When Roman Catholics have sinned and they want someone to intercede for them, do they primarily come to Jesus? No. Who do they primarily go to? The priest? Who else? Mary, specifically, and sometimes their favorite saint, right? Sometimes, and maybe an angel you can throw in there. But they usually go to an inner, inner, someone who intercedes for Jesus, which is very odd because Jesus is the only interceder between God and man. So the Bible says that Jesus intercedes between God and man, and yet Roman Catholics say, I can't go to Jesus, but rather I'll go to his mother who will tame him. Isn't that true? Or I'll go to a saint who maybe will talk to the mother or maybe will talk to Jesus and then get me right with God. Do you know why they do that? Do you know why they just won't go straight to Jesus? Because their argument, by the way, is that James says that a right, the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. And they argue, well, who's more righteous than Mary? So we should go to Mary. But that argument doesn't work because who's more righteous than Jesus? Right? So if the prayers of a righteous man avail much, you should go to the most righteous person, which would be, of course, Jesus. Also, you're not ever told to go praying to saints or people who are dead. So just strictly unbiblical. But the point is, why are they going to an interceder between them and Jesus when Jesus is supposed to intercede between God and man? And the answer is, especially medieval Catholicism, now it's more Mariology and those kind of things, but medieval Catholicism had a very stern view of Jesus. They only view Jesus as judge, as the one who's supposed to whack you with the hammer, who's going to be stern and angry. And so they were scared, just as scared of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So they couldn't go to the Father because he's, of course, mad. They couldn't go to Jesus because he's God and he's mad too. They can't go to the Holy Spirit, so they must go through Mary. And so our passage here is to help and to relieve that kind of distorted thinking. Because Jesus is not just the judge, but rather he is this merciful high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. And the reason he can sympathize with our weakness is stated right there in the text. It says in verse 14, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is a very important passage. What this is saying is this. When Jesus was here on earth, we are not to suspect that he was just going through the motions, that things would, people would tempt him and it would just bounce off him like nothing. In fact, what biblical passage can you go to? You can see clearly that, G, that temptations were not just bouncing off Jesus like nothing. Can anyone think of a passage? If I wanted to say, what passage shows Jesus buckling and, and feeling the weight of sin? What passage would you go to? The Garden of Gethsemane, right? Remember he sweat 
drops of blood. In, the very, in that very text, it says an angel came and ministered to him, strengthening him. You see Jesus feeling the pressure, not my will, but your will be done. And so Jesus, when he was here on earth, was tempted just as we were tempted, but there's a major exception. Because when we are tempted, we often waver, right? You get under that bar, sometimes that bar comes and crushes you. That is the reality. And we have to get back up and dust ourselves off and say, we'll try again better next time. But Jesus got underneath that bar every single time and bore all of the weight, and he never failed. He was sinless. He was spotless. Now, this raises a very troubling and difficult theological question, and it's this. In what way did Jesus feel temptation? And there's been all kinds of theological speculation about this, about what exactly was the nature of Jesus' internal temptation. To this question, I ask the following question. What kind of temptation did Adam have in the garden? Do you know? Can you relate? Can you say, yeah, I know exactly what it feels like to be unfallen Adam in a perfect garden, walking with God, talking to the devil, telling you to eat other fruit? You can't, can you? Because you haven't been there. What kind of temptation did the angels have when they were in heaven, no sin, and the devil was trying to tempt them into evil? What was that temptation like? You know? You're going to say, I know that. I know exactly what it was like to be in heaven, completely sinless. Even more tricky, what kind of temptation did the devil have when nobody was tempting him at all? When he was just in heaven and some evil internal thought came into him and started internally tempting him. Let me ask something more simple. What kind of feeling of temptation do you have the last time you sinned? What about the last time I sinned? Do you know what it felt like for me? Here's my point of all that. I don't know. And I don't think you know either. And I think we can come to all kinds of weird speculations and conclusions. But the truth is, we don't know. And guess what? We don't have to know. Look at the text again. Does it say anything about the nature of Jesus' internal temptations? You see that? See, we're interested in those kind of questions. We like to go down that rabbit hole. The Bible is not interested in that kind of question. Hence the reason it is not addressed. But here is the point. Here's where I raise it. Whatever you do, what you cannot do is say, no, this text doesn't mean what it says. Namely, Jesus wasn't really tempted. You can't do that right? Because if you do that, then you destroy the entire purpose of the text, which is what? To say that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest because he knows what it feels like. If you then go theologically and say, well, no, Jesus doesn't know what it feels like, then you destroy the meaning of the text. Do you see that? The entire purpose of the text is to say this, just as you can go to Jesus because he knows what it is like. He knows what the weight feels like, and he can sympathize with you, but not sympathize as a fellow sinner, but rather sympathize as one who has conquered that sin. There should be something really comforting about that, because if you struggle with sin, and you felt that internal pressure, and you have fallen, sometimes you can just feel very scared to go to God, to think that he just cannot understand, and he's just ready to clobber you. But the reality is this text says if you are his child and if you have sinned that you can in fact go to God, he does know what it feels like and he can sympathize with you and he's covered your sin, that he's washed it. He knows what it's like to feel that way. He also knows that you could have conquered 
just like he had conquered. And nevertheless, he will, you can go to him and trust him. And that's why the imperative in verse 14, the command is, let us hold fast our confession. We can go to Christ, even though he sees it all, even though he knows it all. He knows every bad thought. He knows every bad intention. He knows every hidden sin. Yet we don't have to run from Christ because of that. We can hold on to our confession. We can hold on to our faith, and we can run to him in time of need. And when is our time of need? We have multiple times of need. If you're an unbeliever, your time of need is now. Your time of need is your current condition where you are lost, that your sins are a great burden on your back, that you are headed to eternal separation with God into that place that we refer to as hell. That is a time of great need. Today is the day of salvation to get right with God. And you can run to Christ, the sympathetic high priest who says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you turn to Christ, if you start heading in his direction, if you start listening to his pleas, you will never find him turn you away, ever. Did you know that? You'll never come to God and him rebuke you as you come. No, he doesn't rebuke those who come. He rebukes those who refuse to come. Think about the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son? He had messed up everything. He had shamed his father. He had spoiled everything. He was an utter disgrace. And yet the moment that he decided, I'm going to turn back and I'm going to go to my father and perhaps he would take me just as a servant. What did the father do? He came running after the son and embraced him and restored him and cleansed him. And that's the God that we serve. The time of need is now. Today is the day of salvation that we can run to Jesus and receive that robe of forgiveness and his righteousness. But for us Christians, those who are saved, when is the time of need? Well, the time of need is now too, by the way. Every day. The time of need is when we sin, when we fall, when we have failed. The holier we get, the more righteous we get, the more difficult we realize God's law is, right? When you first get saved, there's the big sins. Maybe you drink every night. Maybe you are constantly doing drugs. Maybe you're watching things on your phone that you shouldn't be watching. Maybe you're doing things behind your spouse's back you shouldn't be doing. There's a whole bunch of really big sins, right, that are quite obvious. If you're in the store stuffing candy in your pocket that isn't yours and walking out of the store, that's a pretty obvious thing you need to get out of your life. Isn't that true? When you first get saved, there's some pretty obvious things that you got to get rid of. But what happens when you get rid of that? Oh, now I'm perfect. Now I'm holy. Now everyone should be like me. Wrong. What you then discover is that there's a whole bunch of deeper sins, sins of gossip, sins of hatred, sins of sluggardness, sins of inactivity, sins of prayerlessness, sins of refusing to neglect God's word, God's people, sins of things that you should have done, sins of omission. There's a whole bunch of things. You get what I'm saying here? When is the time of need? The time of need is now. We always have to come to Christ. And as you feel that sin again, you feel that condemnation, you feel that incompleteness. Look back to this text. What does it say? Verse 16, look at verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace and help in time of need. This is a truly amazing and wonderful scripture. In our time of need, which is almost always our time of sin, and there are other times of need, by the way. I'm not saying that the only time of need is our time of sin. There are other times of need too, but every time you sin is a time of need. Amen? Isn't that true? If you sin, it is a time of need for help. And every time you do that, you can actually come boldly 
to the throne of grace and know that you're going to see a sympathetic, a merciful, a loving high priest. And by the way, this is exactly the opposite of what we're tempted to do. When we sin, when you last sin, I want you to go back to that moment for a second. What did you want to do? When you sin, is that, you just sinned. Then you want to pick up your Bible. Then you want to pray. Then you want to listen to a worship song. Is that what you want to do? Then you want to go minister to somebody? No. Generally speaking, what we want to do is run and hide, right? Remember Adam and Eve? They sinned, and they packed up and left. And they went running into the bushes. And that's what we're tempted to do. And that's what the devil tells us we must do. But look at the passage. Instead of running away from Jesus, we can come boldly to Jesus and receive help in our time of need. I think, this is, <clears throat> I think this is summarized wonderfully by one of my favorite passages in the Bible, and it's 1 John 1.9. Anybody have that verse memorized? 1 John 1.9. Jacob, I know you have that verse memorized. 1 John, if you don't have that verse memorized, get it done. This verse is going to help you, I promise. If you confess your sins... He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The reason I say this passage is going to help you is because you're going to find yourself sinning. You're going to find yourself sinning, I promise you. You will find yourself sinning, and then what should you do? If you confess, what are you supposed to do? If I confess, I'm supposed to confess my sins. Then, this is the amazing verse, Jesus is faithful and just, and you would think it's, it would say to punish you, to get what you deserve. But it doesn't say that. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from unrighteousness. That's a wonderful passage. It's a wonderful truth. And it's true for unbelievers and believers. An unbeliever, you got to confess all of it. You, just have, you don't have to remember every single sin, but you have to just say, Lord, I'm a sinner, and I deserve your wrath, and I deserve to be separated from you. I recognize that if you were to judge me based on your law, based on if I've been good enough, that I won't make it. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you. And as a believer, you should be confessing specific sins, or at least pattern of sins, saying, God, forgive me. And guess what? He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And when you do that, I want you to remember this passage. And I want you to remember that Jesus is that faithful and sympathetic high priest. That's the time you're supposed to see this lovely and wonderful, and I don't, I don't want to even say it, but almost cuddly Jesus. It's those times that you're supposed to see that. And other times, when you're hardening your sin and you refuse to repent, that's when you should see the judge and realize that he is, in fact, seeing you and displeased at you at that very moment. And he wants you, more than anything, to turn around and come to him. It's a, it's a weird thing, but this judge who could be so angry is primarily angry because you will not come to him who will cleanse you. At the end of Romans, Jesus says, or God says, all day long I have stretched out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. All day long, he says, come, come. Will you come? Bow with me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you're not only our judge, but you're this merciful and loving high priest. Lord, we ask that we would come to you, that we would bow the knee, that we would surrender our lives to you, Lord. And, and receive the forgiveness that you offer. And I pray, Lord, for those of us who have done that already, I pray that we would continue to come to you, Lord. We would continue to see that you love us even when we sin, that you're willing to restore us, that we would find our help in you. We would not be looking at self-help. 
we'd be not looking at self-motivation or pep talks or just trying to white-knuckle it, but instead we'd come to you as our great high priest who will help us in our time of need. We love you, Jesus. In Jesus' name.